Good morning. This morning we begin a new series of studies in the book of Daniel. So you can turn to the book of Daniel with me in chapter 1, verse 1. And because this is our very first study in this book, we're going to do a little bit of an introduction, give ourselves an understanding of the book of Daniel that will help us to understand the rest of the book and the teaching within it. As we begin this series of studies, I just want to really encourage you, because this really is, and I I, I guess it's kind of something I say a lot, one of my favorite books, but as a child, this was my favorite book, because I remember in Sunday school learning all about the handwriting on the wall, the statue uh, that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about, the of course, Daniel in the lion's den. These were the accounts that I was most familiar with. Of course, we didn't necessarily get into the second half of the book as children. But I do remember this book has always been precious to me, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you over the next few months as we study it together. Let's open in a word of prayer. <clears throat> oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning with humble hearts and reverence in our hearts toward you and your presence. We desire to hear from you in a very powerful way. May each week, as we open up a different portion of this book, may it serve to just help us to be the people that you've called us to be. May we dare to be a Daniel. May we be the kind of people that live our lives, our our lives of faith in the midst of a wicked world in a way that transforms the lives that we touch. Lord, may our example be that of men and women who are willing to go into the fiery furnace, if necessary, who are willing to say what needs to be said to power and authority, and to trust you with our lives when we are persecuted, the way that Daniel and others did in this book. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, I I think one of the things that I I didn't mention was uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And my first introduction to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which we're not going to be talking about today, my first introduction was I, my, I have an aunt and uncle who had many cats, but they had two cats, and one was Shadrach, and one was Meshach. So the logical question was, where did Abednego? <laughs> but they actually did have those two cats. And so, you know, I grew up in a home where we constantly were talking about things from the Bible, And this book just fascinated me. And many times we jump to those portions of Scripture that I mentioned. Daniel in the lion's den. And we look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Or the handwriting on the wall, which always fascinated me in my children's Bible. Because they had a little picture of a hand drawing on the wall. But you know, chapter 1 is often overlooked. It's really an introduction, but it's also an important chapter. Because it sets right up front the truth in our hearts of what a godly example can accomplish in the lives of others. So chapter 1 is really all about Daniel being a godly example. The entire book, though, is really about the sovereignty of God, how God is in control of all things. God is sovereign over all the earth. He is in control. Amen? Well, Daniel the prophet, his name means God is my judge. And he's one of the four major prophets of the Old Testament. He was a Judean exile of noble birth taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. He was probably born in Jerusalem around 623 B.C. during the reign of good King Josiah of Judah, one of the best kings that Judah had. Uh, He was carried away, though, in the summer of 605 B.C. during the first phase of the 70-year captivity. So he was taken prisoner, really, or at least taken into custody and taken away from his home at a very young age and brought to a place of idolatry and wickedness that we can relate to living in our world today. Well, he and a number of others were required to enter into the service of the king of Babylon. They weren't given a choice. It wasn't one of these, what would you like to do while you're here in Babylon? It was very much imposed upon them whether they liked it or not. Now, He was then given the name, as we'll see, Belteshazzar. Daniel means, God is my judge. The name in Chaldean, Belteshazzar, is a pagan name. It means Bel, which is one of their gods. Bel, protect his life. 
And so here he was taken out of his culture, as we'll see, and just thrown into this wicked culture. You know, sometimes I feel like that. Sometimes I wake up and I look at the news or I listen to the television or I just look outside my window and I think, a few years ago, it was the 80s and Reagan was the president. What happened? And here I am now, suddenly in this world that I don't understand. It looks so different than the one that I grew up in. And I fear for our children who have to grow up in this world. And yet Daniel was a godly example in the midst of wickedness and idolatry. So he became ultimately a very influential statesman in Babylon and even in Persia years later during the years of Israel's captivity. So during those 70 years, Daniel was an extremely influential person in these pagan kingdoms. Now, he ranks with Ezekiel and King Jehoiachin as one of the three most important Babylonian captives. And of course, we'll be talking mostly about Daniel. Now, the time and manner of his death is unknown, but we do know that he lived a very long time, uh, probably 80 or 90 years, and he spent 70 years, those formative years of his adulthood in this place we call Babylon. As far as the book is concerned, it's important to know a little bit about it. The Jews were taken captive when the great Neo-Babylonian empire had reached its zenith of world influence. Nebuchadnezzar, who I'm sure you've heard of before, established an empire, and it was fashioned early in his rule, and he ruled for 43 years. All of that time, Daniel was involved in his court and in government. His heirs, who took over after his death, ruled just 23 more years until Cyrus the Great of Persia conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., and we'll see that Daniel was still around in 539 B.C. Daniel's ministry and his writings extended over that period of 70 years from about 605 to 535 B.C., and he witnessed each of the three phases of the Babylonian captivity, which again started in 605, but ultimately finished in, in 586. In 605, he himself was taken into captivity with the Judean nobility. He was of noble birth. He was taken into captivity. In 597, he would have witnessed the arrival of 10,000 captives with their king, Jehoiachin, and Ezekiel the prophet, who was also brought later than Daniel, but brought into Babylon as well. And then in 586 BC, he would have witnessed the ultimate captivity, that is, the arrival of the captives after the fall of Jerusalem. So here this man had to watch his country disintegrate from afar. He watched as his country simply fell apart. And maybe you feel like that sometimes. But you know, you can still be a godly example. And Daniel was. As we've said, he was contemporary with Ezekiel, also Jeremiah. So if you're familiar with those books and those prophets, uh, you will have some indication in your your mind as to what was going on. Uh, He was probably also contemporary with Obadiah, although we're not entirely sure. In fact, when you read the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel mentions three people, Daniel, Noah, and Job as men distinguished for their righteousness. So Daniel was famous. And Ezekiel mentions Daniel once again, bringing attention to his great wisdom in the book of Ezekiel in chapter 28. So clearly, Ezekiel knew Daniel. In fact, it's been suggested that it's at least possible that Daniel and Ezekiel knew each other, and they may have met frequently. There may have been some connection between them after Ezekiel came to Babylon in 597. Well, Daniel had been in Babylon about nine years when Ezekiel arrived. He'd already become famous. Everyone knew who he was. He'd become one of the top leaders in the the kingdom or in the empire. And so we're going to see the influence that he had gave him the opportunity to be a great example. So as God gives you influence with others and in your jobs, in your life, at your school, within your family recognize God is giving you that influence with a purpose to be a good example. You know, I I often think that the most important thing we need to do as Christians isn't so much open our mouths. In fact, many times that can really be a problem, especially if we open them before we've asked God to give us the words to speak. But living our lives, that is the single most powerful thing we can do to reach this culture. 
Just live for God. And you know, I've, I've noticed there are some leaders in our nation that are just doing that. They're not so busy opening their mouths talking about it. They're just doing it. And that will, in fact, change more lives than talking about it. So again, Daniel, wonderful example. This is uh, one of the most important prophetical books of the Old Testament. So that's why uh, we're studying it as we look at the narratives, yes, but also prophetically because it impacts the things that we will be seeing and have already started to see in our world today. It was placed by the Jews in the third section of the Hebrew Scriptures called the Writings. You had the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And yet Daniel was not placed within the Prophets section. He was in the Writings, or the third section. One of the other interesting things about this book, and many of you know, I'm sure, that the New Testament was written in Greek, and that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But there are certain books within the Old Testament that were not just written in Hebrew, but also in Aramaic. And this is one of those books. In fact, while chapters 1 through the beginning of chapter 2 are written in Hebrew, chapters eight, uh, uh, chapters two, or chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7 is all in Aramaic. And that was the international language of the day. So what does that tell us? This book was written not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And so there's a lot here for everyone to understand and learn. Now, the rest of the book, chapters 8 through chapters, uh, chapter 12, uh, to the end of the book, uh, was written once again in Hebrew. So when we're in the Aramaic sections, you'll see that it's decidedly pointed towards the world, to the Gentiles. But while we're in those Hebrew sections, it's directed towards the Jews. Now... <clears throat> It is indispensable as an introduction to New Testament prophecy. I will go so far as to say you cannot even understand New Testament prophecy unless you have at least a basic understanding of the book of Daniel. In fact, the book of Revelation is indecipherable without the book of Daniel. Now, there is a strong connection between the book of Daniel and the New Testament. He's mentioned within the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament acknowledges each of its characteristic elements. It it mentions the fact that there were miracles in the book of Daniel, in the book of Hebrews. We we learned that. Uh, Jesus talked about this in Matthew's gospel, the predictions that Daniel made. That is the prophecies. And in Luke's gospel, we learn about the teachings that Daniel had concerning angels. And so there is that strong connection, and knowledge of Daniel is essential in order, again, to understand all of New Testament prophecy, all that we will be experiencing probably within the next few decades, maybe even less, and the book of Revelation. Now, critics have gone to great extents, as you can imagine, to discredit the authenticity of this book. Now, the reason for that, the reason is is because it's fueled by the fact that Daniel's predictions are so incredibly precise. They're so precise that people have come to this conclusion. Oh, it must have been written after the fact. But that's not true. In fact, we know clearly when this book was written. If it's not divinely inspired, of course it is, but if it's not, you could easily conclude that this book was written no earlier than 167 BC. And yet I've already shared with you that it was written between 605 and 535 B.C. Daniel clearly testified. He is the writer of this book. He makes that clear throughout the book, especially the latter portions of this book. And even Jesus testified to the authenticity of this book. The apostles testified to the authenticity of this book as well. And this book has greatly influenced the Christian church throughout the centuries and continues to do so today. So the book naturally falls into two main divisions. You have the first six chapters, which record several historical events in Babylon and Medo-Persia during the life of Daniel. When we get to chapter 7, we see that chapters 7 through 12 record a series of prophetic visions that Daniel received throughout his life. So two very different sections of this book, and yet the same author, and we'll go through it over the next few months. As we now get into chapter 1 and in verse 1, we read a background introduction of the things that I've sort of summarized for you in our introduction to this book. We read first off in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, 
that in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. And these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. So that's the introduction to how and why Daniel ends up in Babylon as a young man. You see, Nebuchadnezzar surrounded the city of Jerusalem. This isn't the first time. This is the final time. Excuse me, this is the first time. It's not the final time. The final time would come much later when he destroyed the city. At this point, this is the first time Nebuchadnezzar comes. He really just sort of surrounds the city, and the the people of the city sort of capitulate. They're not interested in being destroyed. They agree to pay tribute. Uh, the one king is taken into custody. He's put to death. But the king that's re- that replaces him uh, serves Babylon. And so it's sort of a peaceful transition of power to the Babylonian authority. One thing we do know, and for some of you who, who read Scripture and read it very closely, there are some people who look at the writings of Jeremiah and compare it to the writings of Daniel. And it's interesting because Daniel tells us here that all of this happened in the third year of Jehoiakim, while Jeremiah tells us it happened in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And there's actually a very good reason for that. The Babylonians would describe the year that a king began his reign as the year of ascension, while the Hebrews described the king's first year as when that year was completed. So that's why the difference. Daniel would speak to uh, those who were in Babylon, and they would understand reckoning a king's reign by when he begins, whereas Jeremiah, speaking to the Jews, would count it or reckon it differently. So I will point out these things along the way, because as critics look at this book, these are the kinds of things they point to, and they say, well, this is why you can't trust the Bible. This is why you can't trust the the book of Daniel or the book of Jeremiah. Well, it's not true. Jeremiah was writing to Jews, and so he reckoned the years the way the Jews did, Daniel in Babylon reckoned them differently. Now, Nebuchadnezzar raided Jerusalem. King Jehoiakim was taken captive to Babylon for some period of time, uh, but he was uh, not preserved the way that God would preserve King Jehoiachin, as we'll see. But these precious metals that were in the temple were taken as spoil to Babylon. It was payment. It was extortion, but it was payment to protect them. And and by giving them these precious metals, there would be no conflict. And actually, they would be under the protection of Babylon. Now, Daniel was taken at this time. We read in verses 4 through 7. Actually, we pick it up in verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz chief of the court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Now, among these were some from Judah. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. So you can imagine that this man, Daniel, a righteous man, a good man, along with his friends, were not very pleased to be taken captive from their homeland, from their families, from their city, brought to a foreign place, taken captive, and given new names, and told, oh, by the way, you're going to be working for this king, this pagan king. Have you ever felt your life sort of got off track? Maybe there's been a time in your life when you intended to do something, and things changed, and suddenly you find yourself doing something you never thought you would do or wanted to do. Maybe having to take a job that you don't like very much in order to survive. Or having to live in a place that you don't really want to live because it's just necessary. Daniel had no choice in the matters of his life. And yet, brothers and sisters, God is sovereign. Amen? The theme of this book, God's sovereignty. 
So if God is sovereign, if he's in control, and things happen within our lives that seem out of control, either God is wrong or our perspective is wrong. And I think you know which is true. Our perspective on life's events is wrong when we doubt God. And you may think, well, I, I, I don't understand. Why is God allowing these things to happen in my life? But you'd be wrong to question God. What you'd be right to do is to say, well, God must have a purpose in these things. And I know, based on the account of the book of Daniel, that Daniel and his friends came to the conclusion that God was in control of their lives, even though they would not have chosen Babylon or working in the king's court. Now, Daniel, as we've already seen, was among the ruling class of Babylon. It means he was a prince or at least someone of noble birth. The finest of Judean nobility were taken to Babylon because they were educated, because they were good examples. They had been trained. They were, they were people who would be uh, valuable to the Babylonian kingdom to serve the king. Everywhere they conquered, they would take the brightest and the best, and they would use them to advance their agenda. But they were to be groomed for the king's service. It was going to take a little time. I'm sure they had to be taught the language. Uh, There was other things they had to learn. But three years, that was the plan. And the king was making a significant investment in these men. Now listen, I can only tell you that uh, when I was called into the ministry, I was at the beginning of my career. It was in the mid-80s. And I was very adamant about going forward in my career until I became a Christian. And then pretty quickly, the Lord revealed to me that he had called me into the ministry. And after that, I pretty much decided, well, this is just what I do during the day to pay the bills. My real purpose, my real calling is to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ, teach his word and serve others. And as I did that, I would often think, Lord, why do you have me in Babylon? Why am I here in this place doing insurance as an IT professional, doing what some people and at times I myself felt was a a complete waste of time? So many times I looked at what God had me doing and thought to myself, wow, I don't understand. Lord, if you called me into the ministry, why am I wasting my time with this nonsense? But you know, over my 20-year career, I was trained in many disciplines and not all of them were worldly. Many of them were just, just wise ways to think and to act, how to communicate. I did not go to seminary, okay? I learned how to communicate by studying effective communication in a Fortune 200 company. I was sent to classes by my employer. I went to so many classes. It seemed like every other week there was some seminar, a class, learning computer languages, but also learning business, learning how to speak, how to address a group of people, how to do a presentation. So many things. How to listen. These were all classes that I had to take. As a project manager, I went for training to learn how to do that. And all of this was paid for by my employer. Over a period of 20 years, I received so much training, all free, and got paid for it. So after 20 years, to the day, by the way, after 20 years, I resigned my position and went into full-time ministry here because it was necessary at that point in this church to have a full-time pastor. For several years, I had been pastoring bivocationally. But what I realized at the end of 20 years is what I thought was a complete waste of time was God working in and through my life to prepare me for ministry. So if you look at everything that's going on in your life as a complete waste of time, you're missing out on God's preparation. I don't know where God has you right now. You know where God has you right now. And it may seem like it doesn't make any sense at all, but first, it's an opportunity for you to be a godly example. Secondly, it's an opportunity for God to prepare you for ministry. Whatever ministry he's called you to, wherever you are, I promise if you're surrendered to the Lord, you're being prepared to serve him. Amen? Can the king of Babylon prepare Daniel for ministry? Yeah. All of the circumstances that were taking place in Daniel and his friends' lives were preparing them for the future and what God had called them to do, as we will see each week we get together. So the king was making a significant investment in these men. A significant investment was made in my life, and that is paying off dividends for the kingdom of God 
and in my life now. But Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were selected according to the king's qualifications. He had pretty strict qualifications. He wasn't going to make this investment in just anyone. Despite the cultural and linguistic barriers that obviously existed, they made such a good impression on the court chief that they were selected for this training program. Now imagine, you you can't speak the language, right? Maybe they spoke some, but they really can't communicate. They don't know the culture. They're they're foreigners. They, They don't know anything about it, and yet they are able to make such a great impression that they're selected for this service. What does that say about who they are? What does that say about their character? A lot, I think. So as they're being groomed, they're growing, they're learning, they're young men, but they started off with a character that was recognizable by pagans, by wicked people. Even they could recognize these men had given their lives to God and they were men of character. So that's one of the other things you want to make sure you're doing wherever you are, that you're living as a man or a woman of character, because that's how the opportunities present themselves. They are presented to people of character. So probably of royal lineage from the ruling tribe of Judah, and the fact that they had been removed from their homeland and families didn't diminish their character. They could have spent all of their time in counseling with PTSD, talking about how, oh, my life, because I was taken out of my home. I was at a disadvantage. Uh, I need somebody to listen to me to complain. No, these men looked at their circumstances, understood they served a God who was sovereign, and said, "Let's let's get busy. Let's make this happen. Let's do what God has called us to do in this place. Oh, you can sit around feeling sorry for yourself and all your disadvantages, but I guarantee you probably haven't severed this level of trauma in your life. Maybe you have, but still no excuse. What an opportunity we have to serve God when we face trials, difficulties, and challenges. These men knew that. They were men of character. Now, Ashpenaz, who's the court official here, chief official, he changed their Hebrew names, as we've said, alluding to Jehovah to heathen names referring to pagan deities. Imagine that. Now, my name, my mom named me. uh, I I was supposed to be Anthony because my grandfather was Anthony, and there was a rule in our family, at least, among Italian-Americans, it was very common, that you were always named, especially the firstborn son, was named after the paternal grandfather. So I was supposed to be Anthony, and my grandfather for many years said, when you turn 18... I'm going to take you down to the courthouse. I'm going to change your name to Anthony. And I never understood it, but then years later I realized, you know, my father was named after his grandfather, and, you know, that's just the way it went, right? But my mom, being a woman of faith, had decided that she wanted to name me differently. Actually, she named all of us very differently. We, we don't have traditional Italian names in my family. And it really irked my grandparents a lot. I heard about it my whole life, how... Awful my mom was for not naming me Anthony. And what kind of names are you giving these kids? You're giving them Medigan names. You know, that's what she would always say. And um, I was named Timothy, and I didn't know it at the time, but my mom named me Timothy because it means honoring God. So she wanted me to live a life. That's not necessarily a prophecy, but she wanted what was best for her children, so she named me honoring God. So... I hope that in my life I'm able to live up to that name. But, but the truth of the matter is, these men were given names like that. In fact, we've already mentioned that Daniel means God is my judge, right? Hananiah means Jehovah has favored. Mishael means who is like our God. Azariah means Jehovah has helped. And now they're given these names, and without getting into the translations, each and every one of them point to a, the name of a pagan god. So imagine, your name is Honoring God, and you move to Babylon, they change your name to Beelzebub or something like that. Oh, let's call him uh, Satan. Yeah, let's call him Satan. You know, imagine the trauma of that. You see, it's trauma after trauma that these men endure. And we're just getting started with the persecutions and the trials that these men are going to face. And already, they're being stripped of their culture, taken away from their families, 
They lose their prestige. They lose their position. They find themselves in a wicked, idolatrous place. Idolatry started in Babylon. This is the, the, the capital of idolatry. And now they find themselves in this wicked place, told what to eat, told what to do, told how to live, and what they'll do with their lives. How many of us would have done well under those circumstances? Probably none of us, myself included. But these men were able to thrive, and there's only one reason. They knew that God was sovereign. They were wanting to be godly examples. And because they trusted God, they were. So if you're complaining, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian in blue New Jersey. I got to move to Florida or, or Alabama or some red state where I can live out my faith. If that's where God is leading you, God bless you. I know he's not leading me there because I'm called to be here. But if you're thinking about that and your whole purpose in doing that is you think you can be a better Christian, think about Daniel and his friends. We're not in Babylon. Close, but we're not in Babylon. Okay. Now here's what happened. And this is where it begins. You see, even though we're in the world, we have to separate ourselves from the world. And this is the mistake that many Christians make. They're in the world, and rather than separating themselves from the world, they go through life trying to blend in with the world and stay out of trouble. They don't open up their mouths. They don't want to be canceled. They don't want to be deplatformed. They think, well, I'm not going to say anything because whew, if I say something, I might get in trouble. And they're silenced by their fears and their cowardice and their lack of character. Daniel and his friends were not like this. They knew they could be put to death for some of the decisions they made, but they made them just the same. And they thrived, and they were blessed, and they were godly examples in a wicked place for many, many decades because they trusted God right up into death. All of them did. So our study today is about a, being a godly example. As we look at this, look what happened. Verse 8. Let's just look at verse 8. <clears throat> But Daniel, you know, we're talking about the world and they're changing their names. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, I just want to stop there for a minute. There's two things that I see, two, two aspects of this. First, Daniel was not going to eat food that was sacrificed to idols. Daniel was not going to give himself over to eating food that was against the law, that wasn't kosher, that wasn't ceremonially clean, just because it was convenient. He wasn't going to do that. He resolved. He said, whatever happens, that's not going to happen. I'm not eating that food. That could have cost him his life, certainly. But Daniel was a man of conviction. He was a man of resolve. He lived a godly life. If you live a godly life, there is no room for compromise. Can I hear an amen? A godly testimony can only be one of conviction. And I'm not talking about convictions that are personal convictions, like the fact that I choose not to drink alcohol. Okay? That's a personal conviction. I'm talking about convictions according to God's word. And God's word told the Jews, you don't eat these types of food. You, you don't do that. And so, living according to God's word, he would not break God's laws for the sake of convenience. He just wouldn't do it. He would not eat meat that was not kosher, that was not ceremonially clean. First of all, it would have contained blood. And we know from Leviticus chapter 17, the Jews would not eat meat with the blood still in it. The blood had to be drained. That's kind of what it means when we say kosher. It's prepared properly to be eaten. Also, this food would have certainly included pork and other unclean meats, and they wouldn't eat those meats because, according to Leviticus 11, there were things that were clean and things that were unclean. He wasn't about to defile himself with unclean things. Finally, all of their meat would have been consecrated to pagan gods. They had been given pagan names, but they were still godly men. And they refused to eat meat that was sacrificed to pagan idols. Now, the other thing I see is that he lived in submission to his authority. What? Yeah, it sounds like he's ready to start a war, but he's not. He's just telling you, look, there's, there's some things that are just not going to happen. 
I've resolved not to eat this food. But did you notice in verse 8? It said that Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission. That shows you the heart of Daniel. He was resolved. Yes, he was resolved, but he was living in submission to his authority at the same time. That's a very hard balance to strike. But he trusted God. And as a result, we'll see God met him in that place and at that time and blessed because God is sovereign, because God is in control. But Daniel lived in submission. He recognized his place at the king's palace, and it wasn't to tell everyone what to do. He appealed to his authority without demanding his own way. And let me say that as you face certain things in your life that you're not going to do, you just resolved aren't going to happen, remember to live in submission to your authority as well. That's a tough balance, but Daniel and his friends managed it because God was with them. We read in verses 9 through 14, Now God, now see, we said, but Daniel, now God. Say it with me, but Daniel, now God. You see, that's how it goes. Daniel resolved, and then God solved the problem. It says, Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for ten days. Now, ten days may be an idiom. Uh, the, the, the idiom ten days in the scripture sometimes just means a short period of time. It could have been ten actual days. More than likely, it was some period of time. So he's saying, give God a chance to show you that our convictions will prove you wrong. Give us an opportunity to trust our God and not defile ourselves, and God will show you what's true. That takes faith. Would you agree? That takes faith. Daniel was well-liked. You're going to see this throughout the entire book. The man was giving no quarter to anyone. He, would re- he refused to do anything other than serve as God faithfully, and yet everyone pretty much to a person loved this guy. You know, I see a lot of the other two extremes. Everyone loves him, but, you know, he does whatever he has to do to make people like him. And then I see the other side. This guy won't even do even the smallest thing against the word of God, but everybody hates his guts. Is it possible to be a man or a woman of conviction and actually be favored and well-liked within the world? Not, not for being worldly, but just as a person? Well, it's not always possible, but in Daniel's case, he pulled it off because God was with him and he trusted God. He was well-liked, and that was the result of God's favor and his own determination. He didn't let his convictions destroy potential friendships. Do you hear what I just said? There are some Christians that are just not very smart. That's about the nicest way I can say it. Because they let their convictions destroy potential friendships. He didn't do that. He tried to reason with the chief official. He understood his concerns. He even respected them. He understood that the man would be in trouble if they looked bad, because it was his job, this chief official, to make sure that they didn't look bad, that they were healthy. If anything happened to them, he would be held accountable. Daniel understood that. So what did he do? And I want you to remember this phrase. He looked for alternatives and not for altercations. He looked for alternatives and not for altercations. I know it. It's true. Many of us myself included at times, are looking for an altercation to prove our point. We have our convictions, and we hear the world say something, and we're like, good, let's, let's do it. I'm ready, to, I'm ready to fight for my principles. 
And then you get online, which is a very stupid move to do, and you start typing out your opinions or tweeting out your opinions and saying what you think. And many Christians do this, and I hear about it because Pastor Joe reads Facebook. (laughs) And then he sends me emails. So I know what you're doing, even though you don't think so. No, I'm just kidding. The, the truth of the matter is there are some, I mean, he shared that there are some people, so some Christians, not just people, Christians, who will say all these awful things, and they may even be right in their theology, and they may be even right about their convictions, but the way they approach it is so awful that they're looking for an altercation. Daniel was not. He was looking for an, an alternative. Is there an alternative that will maintain the relationship Or are you so hell-bent on an altercation that you want to fight? You you have to answer that question in your heart for yourself. He appealed to his immediate authority with a proposal. He was persistent. He was diplomatic in dealing with people. And this served him well. He was a man of faith, clearly. And he was willing to put God's word to the test. Are you willing to put God's word to the test? Are you willing to trust that what God said in his word is true? You know, some people are poor. Some people have have no resources. They can't pay their bills, but they don't give. And and it doesn't surprise me. Because the scripture tells us that those that give generously, well, you know what happens? They reap generously. Those that sow generously reap generously. You know, and it's it's funny, you know, you think, oh, if I give and support this ministry or that ministry or or give to this person and get involved in this way, oh, oh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to live on less. But that's not how it happens. God's word, we know it's more blessed to give than to receive. And no, this isn't a sermon on tithing. I'm not talking about tithing. I don't even tithe. I, I give. I don't believe in tithing. It's an old testament principle. Giving to me is giving as God leads you to give. And it doesn't just mean church. It means to others, to ministries, to missions, and different things. But if you hold back and then you don't have, gee, I wonder why. Put God's word to the test. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his own heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, because God loves a cheerful giver. And that is your life, your gifts, your talent, your treasure, all of it. Well, Daniel trusted God's word. He put God's word to the test. Anytime I've put God's word to the test, guess what? It holds up as true. He also made a good impression on those around him. Look what happened in verse 14. What happened? The chief official agreed to this and tested them for 10 days or a short period of time. Now, how is that possible? Because he was being a jerk and got in his face and said, I ain't eating this crappy food. I'm not eating this. I'm a Jew. I don't eat this stuff. Would you have been swayed by a man like that? Would you have thought, oh, yeah, this is the kind of guy I, I, I want to be close to? No, you'd have been put off. You said, you know, forget it. Eat the food or die. <laughs> or you might have said, eat the food and die. Whatever you would have said, you wouldn't have been sympathetic toward Daniel or his friends. Come on. You know that we can be more diplomatic. You know that as Christians, we can maintain our convictions and still be loving with people. It's just not always convenient to do it. Sometimes we enjoy telling people off. Okay, just me, just me. So, this man was persuasive with those in authority. He convinced others of God's ability to sustain them. He convinced them. And he himself was confident in the God that he served. Because our God is sovereign. Amen? Okay, so what happened next is what happens any time you trust in God. Daniel was a man that experienced God's power in and through his life. Do you want to experience God's power in and through your life? Say amen. Well, this is a godly example. May God speak to you from his example. Verses 15 and 16. At the end of 10 days, or that short period of time, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Interesting. Did God show up? 
Amen. Is God sovereign? Amen. Can God be trusted? Amen. Daniel was able to prove God's ability to sustain them. They were abundantly blessed for their obedience. For their obedience. And they were obedient to God. And they were able to surpass their fellow captives in appearance. As I've said, you've got those two extremes. The Christian says, well, we're in Babylon. When in Babylon? What happens in Babylon stays in Babylon. There's those Christians out there. And then there's those Christians like, I'm not eating this food and you're never going to get me. You're going to have to hold my mouth open. Or there's a Daniel who is able to hold to God's convictions and win over people and convince them that God will be faithful. He was able to maintain a life of separation to God in Babylon. He had accomplished his goal without being rebellious against his captors. He had gained the privilege to serve God by relying solely on God. And it is a privilege to serve God, amen? Well, what did God do? Well, look at verses 17 through 21. To these four young men, that is Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, to these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. You see, they were incredibly gifted by God, supernaturally gifted by God. God wants to supernaturally gift you. But if you're not living a life of conviction, and if you're not living a life of conciliation, that is getting along with people, you're just not going to be effective. In fact, those gifts are probably going to get in the way. God wants to do so much in and through your life, but you have to be a godly example, the way Daniel was a godly example. See, God gifted them with practical knowledge and understanding because they needed to excel in literature and secular learning. That's what they were being trained for. So maybe you're studying engineering. Uh, Well, you're thinking, well, engineering, I mean, it's not spiritual. Oh, but it's practical, very practical. And if that's what you're being trained in, you can pray, Lord, give me practical knowledge and understanding, because that's what they received. And that would help them to excel in their careers, though they hadn't chosen to be in the king's court. They needed to excel in these things. God ensured that they would be successful in their calling. If you're not experiencing success in your calling in your life, have you even prayed that God would give you the ability to be successful? Oh, but I work for an insurance company. I can't pray that. God doesn't love insurance companies. The only time they talk about them is when they say an act of God, and it isn't a favorable way to speak about them. You can pray in every situation and in every position or job that God would give you practical knowledge and wisdom to be successful. Why? Because that success is influence, which turns into being a godly example to the world. Amen? And I know this because, again... 20 years, I had a career. I, I'm not the guy that, you know, came out of high school, went into seminary, and never held down, you know, a different type of job. No, I, I've had many jobs, and, and I know what it is to be in Babylon. I do, so to speak. He also gifted Daniel with spiritual knowledge and understanding, because for Daniel, natural ability could never have been enough to equip him for his calling. He needed so much more. God had such great plans to use Daniel. He needed gifting that was off the charts. God gives freely to those who will live lives of conviction and faith. He does. And all of this was according to his good purpose in Daniel's life because God is sovereign. Amen. Okay, verses 18 through 20. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them in, so that would have been about three years, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them. And he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. I guess veggies really are good for you. No, it had nothing to do with the vegetables. Some people, you know, they get on the Daniel diet. I'm sure there'll be a book if there isn't already or some blog. The Daniel diet, lose weight and be spiritual in 10 days. 
It's not about vegetables. You're missing the point. It's like, oh, Samson, he was strong until he got his hair cut. Obviously, I got my hair cut. But, you know, you, you, you see, the thing is, it's not about Samson's hair. It's not about the vegetables that they ate. It's about their faith in God. They would have gladly eaten meat, but not unclean meat. God made up the difference in their lives. I want you to see that. God called them to stand before the king. The king's investment paid off in these men because of God's purpose. In his heart, a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps, Proverbs 16, verse 9. They were prepared to enter the service of the king of kings, not just Nebuchadnezzar, and they would, and they did. God's grace in and through us exceeds in every way any work of the flesh. It's God's grace and his work in and through us. And Daniel was secure. Why was Daniel secure? Because God is sovereign. Look at verse 21, and then we'll close. I'll ask the worship team to come up to briefly close us out in just a minute. It says, And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. I've already shared the dates with you. That was 539 B.C. He went there in 605. 70 years. You see, he prospered. He outlasted many a king in Babylon, even the Babylonian kingdom. He was faithful to serve God throughout his entire life in captivity. Cyrus conquered the Babylonian kingdom 70 years later, but Daniel remained as a godly example. Do you want to be a godly example? Say amen. Well, I think we have a good idea of what that looks like. Thanks to Daniel. May we live our lives like Daniel and his friends. May we live our lives in such a way that God can use us in Babylon. Oh, by the way, newsflash, you're living in Babylon. Oh, but we're going to move to a red state. That's just a red state in Babylon. Still Babylon. You're living in the world. There is no escaping it, and God hasn't ordained you to escape it. He's empowered you and ordained you to influence it. Not to try to control it, to influence it. And you do that by being, like Daniel, a godly example. Lord, Heavenly Father, I pray we've been challenged today to be the kind of men and women that can honor you in the worst of times and in the worst of circumstances. May we live our lives for you. May our lives bring all glory. And may the influence that we have, may they bring all that glory to you. May the influence that we have be used to reach others with the truth. The truth that you came and died on a cross for our sins and rose again on the third day and are coming again to judge the living and the dead. The truth of the gospel that as we cry out to you for forgiveness and repent of our sins, you save us and deliver us from death. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.